we have to believe that at some point, common sense will prevail. Why would you believe that, Mr. Prime Minister? Where'd you get that idea? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans' WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle, Washington on KODX, in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and of course, all fine podcast sites downloadable near you. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling hour that we call the Bradcast. Uh, Last year, after meeting secretly with coal executives... Department of Energy Secretary Rick Perry called for a new rule that would require power plants essentially to continue using coal and nuclear, whether private energy operators actually wanted to or not, under the guise of national security for electricity grid resilience. Federal regulators, however, didn't buy it. Uh, And uh, even a report issued by Rick Perry's own energy department found that the renewable energy sources that uh, we are that are increasing, thankfully, across the country posed no threat to security for the grid. Nonetheless, on Friday, Bloomberg News obtained and published a draft document distributed to Trump's National Security Council before their meeting today that would, in effect, call for massive government subsidies to the dying coal and nuclear industries under a Cold War-era national security uh, provision. It's national security, Desi Doyen. That's why we need coal. That's why we need the visible hand of the market to interfere as much as possible. That's your free market principles right there. There you go. Uh, That news, of course, comes just days uh, after the Canadian government, led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, announced that they will be purchasing a controversial tar sands oil pipeline from uh, Kinder Morgan, the private owners, uh, private Houston owners, in order to ensure the completion of a major extension of the Trans Mountain Pipeline to the west coast of Canada 
Despite years of objections, protests, legal actions from environmental and indigenous groups, and even uh, despite uh, the previous words about protecting the environment from the prime minister, we'll be joined by an energy expert who happens to be Canadian shortly to explain both of those disturbing issues. Maybe to apologize for the uh, Canada part, because, you know, that's what Canadians do. Uh, Also, we've had uh, quite a bit of response to our previous broadcast in which I shared with you the insane emails that I've been receiving over the past week from Alabama's Secretary of State John Merrill in advance of Tuesday's primaries in the state where Merrill himself just is on the uh, Republican primary ballot. I hope to have some time to cover some of that feedback. Much of what uh, much of which begins with uh, the words like "Wow" and "Holy crap" and "Oh my God." Yep. Uh, <laughs> but if you missed uh, Thursday's show, check out Bradblog.com, where you can also read the uh, email thread in uh, in full. That email thread in question between myself and the Secretary of State of Alabama which is kind of mind-blowing. You can download our shows anytime for free, though we do appreciate those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day. You're the only ones who uh, assure that we can continue to do it. But on the topic of elections and Tuesday's primaries in eight states, including Alabama, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota, and yes, right here in California, our Secretary of State, who's mm, only moderately better than Alabama's, in my opinion, to be frank, um, that would be Alex Padilla. He's also on the ballot on Tuesday. He sent out a press release today uh, stating this, California has seen an increase of some 1.3 million registered voters since the last report of registration at a similar point in a gubernatorial election cycle. That would be back in May of 2014, uh, with some 19 million now, 19 million or more than 75 percent of eligible Californians now being registered to vote. Wow. That's the highest percentage of eligible citizens registered to vote heading into a California gubernatorial primary and midterm primary in the past 64 years. But while that's very good news, these numbers are likely uh, also of great concern, at least if you happen to be a Republican. For the first time, Padilla notes, the number of voter uh, the number of voters registered in California with no party preference at all has surpassed those registered with the Republican Party in California. Voters registered as uh, Democratic remain the largest group, so it's Democrats, then no party preference, and then Republicans. For years, Padilla notes, the number of uh, the numbers of voters registered without a party preference has been increasing. Today's report shows a significant milestone in the ever-changing California electorate. Voters without a party preference now outnumbering registered Republicans in California. Wow. So Republicans in California are driving people away from the party in California. That's what it seems in big numbers. GOP registration has plummeted more than 10 points since 1998. That's uh, what 20 years. Democratic registration is also off just a bit, uh, but just under two points in those same 20 years. No party preference voters, however, have skyrocketed 
from 12.5% of the electorate to 25.5%, more than a quarter of the electorate now. The secretary also notes that even if you missed the regular voter registration deadline before the June 5th primary, you may still be able to vote this Tuesday in California. He explains that if you miss the regular voter registration deadline already, uh, you may not be able to cast uh, your vote at a local polling place or by mail, but you still have an opportunity to cast a ballot. Between now and Election Day, you can go to your county election office or a designated satellite location to complete what is called conditional voter registration by filling out a voter registration card and a ballot And once county election officials complete the regular voter registration uh, verification process, your ballot will then be processed and your vote will be counted. So even if you are not yet registered to vote in California, you can even just days from the, uh, uh, the primary on Tuesday, you can still get in to check your own registration status right now. You can go to voterstatus.sos.ca.gov if you live in California. Padilla says at the Secretary of State's office, we're working to make it easier for all citizens to register to vote. We've developed a mobile-friendly voter registration website, redesigned our paper voter registration forms, and have worked with the DMV to implement automatic registration. Those trends, however, where uh, GOP registration is falling and no-party preference voters now outnumber Republicans, that's not only being seen in California which is no doubt why the uh, state of Texas is fighting so hard against making it easier for voters to register to vote at all, much less be able to vote once they manage to uh, to register. The far right wing Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, has determined that Texas may continue to violate both the National Voter Registration Act and the Constitution itself, at least for now. And if history of this uh, court tells us anything, it's likely to uh, continue until after the 2018 election, despite the fact that the state lost a lawsuit last week that was filed back in 2016 on this. Texas will not be required to meet a 45-day deadline to implement online voter registration for drivers, at least for now, according to the Texas Tribune. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on Thursday temporarily blocked a lower court ruling, which we discussed on the show last week, that mandates a voter registration system that would allow drivers to register to vote when they renew their driver's licenses online. This is part of the uh, Texas violating the federal voter registration law known as the Motor Voter Act. That's meant to make it easier for folks to register to vote. Pointing to registration deadlines for the November election, U.S. District Judge Orlando Garcia had ordered the state to create the online system, which would be the first mechanism for online voter registration in the state of Texas at all, in order to, in order to comply with the Motor Voter Act or the National Voter Registration Act. That requires voters to... Uh, be allowed to register to vote when they uh, get their driver's license. Last week, just minutes after the lower court ruling, the state appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which put Garcia's ruling on hold during the appeals process, which could now drag out for months, leaving it uncertain whether the online system will be in place ahead of this fall's election. 
I would add, of course, it won't be. That's the plan. And that's the reason Republicans who run the state have been dragging this whole thing out for years, even though they're clearly in violation of both the law and the Constitution. Texas drivers who renew their licenses in person, they can register at a Department of Public Safety office office when they do. But if you update your license on the DPS website, instead you have to go through a complicated process. You go to the they point you to the secretary of state's website. You have to uh, print out a registration. You have to mail it in snail mail to your county register. And, of course, that disparate treatment violates both the registration law and the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause by treating voters who deal with their driver's license online differently than those who register in person, according to the judge. The state has been reluctant to revise its current system, asked to propose a fix earlier this month. The judge would have allowed Texas to uh, to, to come up with their own idea before being found in violation of the law and the Constitution, but the Texas Attorney General's office offered no specific solution of its own, disputed the judge's ruling because, well, you know, Republicans, even in Texas, know that their ranks are rapidly declining among the electorate and they'd rather keep folks from uh, being able to register and vote at all uh, rather than, you know, offering popular ideas for voters. Let's just keep them from voting rather than you know, give voters something they might actually want to vote for us for. <laughs> God forbid. I mean, yeah. <laughs> other states somehow managed to do this. I'm not sure why Texas has so much trouble with it. Well, you know, it's Texas. I know. Just for summary, they just can't figure out how to do it in Darn the great it. state of Texas. Uh, we will, of course, keep our eyes on that case. But uh, speaking of a lack of popularity, Donald Trump uh, has moved ahead now to impose steep tariffs on steel and aluminum from three of America's biggest trading partners, Canada, Mexico, Mexico and the European Union. The uh, trade penalties, 25 percent on imported steel, 10 percent on imported aluminum took effect at midnight on Thursday night. Mexico, the EU and Canada immediately announced plans to retaliate with their own tariffs against American products. Even Republicans on Capitol Hill now are said to be fuming about this, according to CNN, after trying to convince the administration for months to target China with tariffs rather than close U.S. trading partners. Republicans are quite concerned about this, not concerned enough to actually do anything about it, but, you know, to act like they're upset. We'll see. They, they may start hearing from their constituents here. These uh, jilted U.S. allies, as AP describes them, vowed to retaliate with tariffs of their own uh, in a separate dispute. China is now poised to penalize the U.S. Uh, U.S. goods, 50 billion dollars worth, many of them produced by supporters of Donald Trump in the America's uh, agricultural heartland. Brian Klabunde, a farmer in northwest Minnesota, says they're going to hit farmers. We want things fair for all industries, but we're going to take the brunt of the punishment if other countries retaliate. Uh, Rod Hunter, former National Security Council staffer under George W. Bush, said the president seems to be creating trade and other disputes with everyone, allies and adversaries alike, and it's difficult to discern any coherent strategy. Oh, you think? Mexico, for instance, plans to retaliate against the steel and aluminum tariffs by targeting U.S. cheese, among other products. 
The uh, president of Sartori, a cheese company in Plymouth, Wisconsin, said of these tariffs that uh, it's our second Mexico is our second largest market. This will reduce sales. There's no question. The EU is threatening to penalize Kentucky bourbon and the motorcycles of Wisconsin based Harley Davidson. Those potential tariffs would specifically hurt constituents of House Speaker Paul Ryan from Wisconsin and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky. McConnell was asked whether he thought that the Europeans were trying to get his attention with this, and he said, well, they got my attention. They didn't need to do that. These are our friends. These are not our enemies. Canada and Mexico, Europe, these are our allies, and we need to work this out in a way that's comforting to everyone. In Canada, on Thursday night, the largest exporter of steel uh, to the U.S., that would be Canada, uh, their prime minister, Justin Trudeau, pushed back, saying Trump's actions lacked common sense. Let me be clear. These tariffs are totally unacceptable. Americans remain our partners, our allies, and our friends. This is not about the American people. We have to believe that at some point, common sense will prevail. But we see no sign of that in this action today by the U.S. administration. Trudeau went on to announce retaliatory measures that include tariffs against imports of steel, aluminum and other products from the U.S. He said the country would now be, quote, imposing dollar for dollar tariffs for every dollar levied against Canadians by the U.S. He said these countermeasures will only apply to goods originating from the U.S. and will take effect on July 1. Uh, he says they will remain in place until the U.S. eliminates its trade-restrictive measures against Canada. Well, frankly, it's hard to blame him or Mexico or the EU or anybody else pushing back against this idiocy. On the other hand, I think we can blame Canada's Trudeau for what he announced this week that he plans to do to the environment up in the Great White North, which sounds a hell of a lot like what we've uh, learned today that the Trump administration plans to do as well. Those stories are next on the broadcast with Oil Change International's Alex Dukas, a Canadian. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Oh, how can you do that making me look bad? You're such a hose hand. Yeah, well, take off! Take off! To the great white north! Take off! It's a beauty way. Oh, man, a long time since we heard that oldie but goodie there. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Trump administration officials are making plans to order grid operators to buy electricity from struggling coal and nuclear plants in an effort to extend their life, a move that could represent an unprecedented intervention into U.S. energy markets. The Energy Department would exercise emergency authority 
under a pair of federal laws to direct the operators to purchase electricity or electric generation capacity from at-risk facilities, according to a memo obtained by Bloomberg News and published today. The agency also is making plans to establish a, quote, strategic electric generation reserve with the purported aim of promoting the national defense and maximizing domestic energy supplies. The uh, 41-page draft memo circulated before a National Security Council meeting on the subject on Friday said that federal action is necessary to stop the further premature retirements of fuel-secure generation capacity. The plan here sounds a lot like a proposed rule recommended in a report last summer from Energy Secretary Rick Perry and heavily lobbied for by coal baron GOP donors, which would essentially require power plants to continue using coal and or nuclear, whether the energy companies who own them wanted to or not, under the pretext of grid reliability and resilience. Federal regulators, however, not to mention climate hawks who scoffed at the idea last year, shot down the idea in January. Nuclear and coal-fired power plants are struggling to compete against cheap natural gas and renewable electricity, according to Bloomberg. As nuclear and coal plants are decommissioned, regulators have been grappling with how to ensure that the nation's power system can withstand extreme weather and even cyber attacks. The document, dated May 29 and distributed on Thursday, is marked as a draft, which is, quote, not for further distribution. Nice work on that. Uh, And it could be used by administration officials to justify the intervention, this unprecedented intervention. That's right. Intervention in the energy industry to pick winners and losers, precisely what Republicans and even the fossil fuel industry for years at least under Obama, had claimed that the government should never be doing in the industry. Opponents of the new draft scheme contend that bailouts to the coal and nuclear industry under the guise of grid resilience are a solution in search of a problem. They argue there are many ways to back up the grid that won't cost taxpayers billions of dollars. A coalition of natural gas and renewable power advocates told Energy Secretary Perry after his heavily criticized proposal last year that just won't die, it seems, that, uh, quote, power plant retirements are a normal, healthy feature of electricity markets, and therefore there is no emergency that would justify Energy Department action here. Invoking national security concerns, however, could bolster the Trump administration's case in any legal challenges over this intervention. According to uh, Ari Pesco, the director of the Electricity Law Initiative at Harvard University. Meanwhile, up in Canada, the federal government is invoking similar claims in order to nationalize a controversial privately owned oil sands pipeline. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says that the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline is a, quote, vital project in the national interest and that its purchase by the Canadian government from the pipeline's current private owner, Kinder Morgan, will ensure the expansion to this pipeline is built despite protests from environmentalists and other groups. Canada will control this 715-mile pipeline and its expansion, which is meant to increase capacity flowing out of the dirty Alberta tar sands oil fields, up to 890,000 barrels a day. 
In order to do so, Canada will pay the pipeline's current owner, Kinder Morgan, $4.5 billion in, in Canadian dollars. That's just $3.5 billion in U.S. currency, you know, real money. The uh, pipeline connects oil sands facilities near Edmonton, Alberta, to tanks in Burnaby near Vancouver on ca Canada's west coast. Its expansion is a key part of Canada's effort to boost oil exports to Asian markets. But the plan has been protested by indigenous groups and environmental activists who warn of the risks of a spill and the hazards of increased petroleum tanker traffic, not to mention the increase in man-made fossil fuel emissions, which are adding steroids to our ongoing climate change crisis. The issue up in Canada has divided two can Canadian provinces pitting Alberta's government, where the tar sands are mined, against leaders in British Columbia on the West Coast. Alberta Premier Rachel Notley said after the deal was announced, responding to critics who are worried about its impact on the climate, that, quote, any climate change plan that ignores the needs of working people is doomed to fail, and any economic plan that ignores climate change is setting our businesses, our kids, and future generations up to fail. She seems to be trying to have it both ways there, if you ask me. Meanwhile, on the West Coast in British Columbia, Premier John Horgan said tens of thousands of B.C. jobs depend on pristine coastal and inland waters. Our environment, he says, generates millions in economic, economic activity, from tourism to film and fisheries. It doesn't matter who owns the pipeline. What matters is defending our coast and our lands, rivers and streams. Horgan said his province will continue to seek a legal remedy to stop the expansion even after the Canadian prime minister has nationalized this pipeline. So uh, who among those two different Canadian premiers has it right? Well, when we've got fossil fuel issues and Canadian issues... We've got someone we like to talk to. Alex Dukas is the director of the Stop Funding Fossil Fuels program at the nonprofit Oil Change International. His work focuses on ending international subsidies and public finance for fossil fuels and shifting public resources toward building a clean energy future, including access to clean energy for all. Alex Dukas, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, thanks so much for having me. You bet. I wanted to ask you... Uh, I wanted to ask you about what the hell uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was was thinking here when when I heard about what he's doing a, a few days ago. But now that Trump is attacking Canada essentially with trade tariffs at the same time, I also kind of feel bad for him and Canadians as a whole, at least on that point, uh, and, and that they have to deal with our idiotic president on all of these other issues. Since you are Canadian yourself, Alex, I, I want to issue... Our apologies for that uh, before we get to what your prime minister is doing. Uh, but before we get to both of these issues, um, uh, both the U.S. and Canada here seem to be trying to prop up the coal, oil and nuclear industries. But how will these tariffs that are going into effect today uh, from a fossil fuel standpoint, these tariffs, uh, which are taxes on U.S. consumers, how will these uh, these these are on the aluminum and steel industries uh, imports from our allies in Canada, Mexico and the EU? How will that affect oil prices and the fossil fuel industry overall, which I believe actually opposes these uh, these new Trump taxes? 
Yeah, well, let me just start by saying uh, I think we both owe an apology to the rest of the world on behalf <laughs> of Canada and the U.S. Yes. for propping up the fossil fuel industry with these egregious and terrible decisions that uh, Trump and Trudeau have taken over the last few days. Um, it turns out that they're actually a lot more alike than I would have hoped, mm. yeah. <laughs> because they're both they're both willing to step in and nationalize parts of the fossil fuel industry, but not for the reasons of a managed decline of the industry to help address climate change. No, it's to prop up the industry and, and keep the dollars flowing uh, to the petro state and to uh, coal executives. So that's not not terribly encouraging, and then we no. probably do owe an apology to the rest of the world. In terms of uh, the tariffs, your question on that, I think the likely outcome there is that um, it's going to affect Canada and the U.S. differently, the, the tariffs from the U.S. side and the retali- retaliatory tariffs from Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. tariffs also are going to affect Mexico as well. And I think what we're likely to see is a, a, a some, somewhat of an increase in the cost uh, to develop new oil and gas projects, whether it's upstream or midstream, uh, like uh, extraction, um, new exploration, uh, or whether it's stuff like pipelines. Um, that That's they're, they're all steel-intensive mm-hmm. industries, and a lot of them also are aluminum-intensive industries. So we're likely to see some increase in the cost to develop, um, which could translate to uh, certainly uh, somewhat higher uh, prices uh, marginally. Um, I, I don't know that it's going to have a massive effect. Um, a, a lot of steel for some of the projects that are under discussion has already been uh, contracted, for example. So in Canada, about three-quarters or two-thirds uh, depending on who you ask, of the steel for some of the projects that have been proposed, the major pipeline projects have already has already been contracted. So if if those go ahead, um, and we don't expect them to, frankly, because the economics of the projects are so bad, which is why it's so unfortunate the Canadian government decided to step in and buy one of the pipeline expansion projects. Um, but uh, we would expect if they did go ahead that to increase the costs uh, uh, somewhat, um, but uh, but probably not massively. The, the uh, gas. While we're just still on the topic here, uh, gas price have uh, been going up pretty steadily over the past year or so since Trump has taken office. He had previously said that uh, presidents have, quote, tremendous power over higher gas prices. Uh, And uh, in fact, uh, as a number of news stories have reported over the last week or two, the rising gas prices, in fact, have more than offset the limited benefits that Republicans claimed the uh, Trump's Trump tax cuts would give to working families. Now, I'm not necessarily and I suspect you aren't either necessarily against uh, increased gas prices because then it means we theoretically use less of it. But uh, Trump has said that, uh, you know, during the Obama era, he repeatedly insisted that presidents have direct influence over the price of gasoline, that Obama and Democrats should be fired because gas prices at that time were up. So a year and a half into his administration, uh, how's he doing on on that score in lowering the cost of uh, energy and uh, oil and gas and coal and everything else? Well, I I wouldn't say he's doing a great job. I think you hit the nail on the head, though. There is that you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, the, the president or any one individual um, has limited agency over global oil and gas prices. And uh, what we're seeing is is Trump sort of you know reaping what he's sown. He said, "Well, Obama, you know, he should have." He should have pushed for lower gas prices. He should have done whatever was in his power. Um, the president, as you said, has tremendous power, is what Trump has claimed when it comes to gas prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and now uh, that uh, the vagaries of international markets are sort of at his doorstep, uh, we aren't hearing him crow about uh, gas prices anymore, which isn't a huge shock. 
Um, but, you know, the interesting thing is that presidents can and do have pretty tremendous power over domestic energy production and domestic energy markets in the U.S. And um, that's, that's a place where Trump is actually setting up consumers to pay vastly more for more polluting forms of electricity just to give handouts to his corporate cronies and his buddies in the coal industry, which is something that you touched on in your introduction. Yeah. Well, yeah, let me get on to that. This draft plan that was revealed today by Bloomberg to essentially invoke national security concerns in order to help prop up the coal and nuclear industry. Putting aside, Alex, uh, for a moment... Uh, the environmental concerns, the idea of the government picking winners and losers here, which Republicans used to pretend to abhor. Is there any actual legitimacy to this, to the national security concerns that it looks like Trump hopes to invoke using this uh, nearly 70-year-old Cold War-era Defense Production Act? I think it was invoked by Harry Truman. Uh, is there anything to national security concerns when it comes to our national power grid uh to your knowledge that actually needs to be acted upon here no um you know rick perry and 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 president trump have pretended that that's the case uh and they seem to to wish that they could formulate an argument that would support that case but even the department of energy's own analysis and assessment on this question uh under rick perry came out and said actually you know what there's no there's no real problem here there's not a reliability and security of supply issue in the united states i think the bigger issue is you know geopolitical instability and uh you know relying on so much oil and gas in the united states um that's that's a, a bigger issue and if we were serious about national security and we're worried about security of supply from an energy perspective we'd be trying to transition the energy system to renewables and storage as quickly as possible uh, but that's not what's happening instead we're seeing the government talk about stepping in issuing a plan and an order here to step into markets and distort them and uh and hand out money to a lot of the people who backed uh donald trump in his election campaign uh to try and give those polluters big bucks from taxpayers and from consumers um, in order to keep them flush. Uh, so it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty absurd. And it's, it is interesting and unfortunate that we're kind of seeing similar things play out on both sides of the border in yeah. Canada and the U.S. Um, and it just, it just gives you a, a real sense of, you know, you, you said putting aside the question of this rhetoric that yeah. uh, conservatives uh, like to employ against Obama and against clean energy at the time when they said it's receiving subsidies, it's not a level playing field. And now uh, when the situation has turned around, and these fossil fuel sources are getting absolutely crushed in the market by much cheaper renewable energy sources. Mm -hmm. um, suddenly they're screeching about how subsidies distort the market has subsided to a whisper. So um, I find that pretty interesting, and it just shows where the true power lies often uh, when it comes to influence in government. Uh, the fossil fuel industry, unfortunately, still has massive power, which is something we have to work together to try and counter. Which, by the way, is, is why I don't call those folks you referred to just now as conservatives. They are not conservatives. A conservative would say... Uh, you know, they're Republicans, they're right wingers, but they're not they're corporatists, whatever. But they're not conservative because you could make the conservative argument that government should stay out of these markets. Yep. But you can't then have it both ways uh, and say government should get back in. But you may still call me a conservative. I just you know, that's it's a great branding uh, for for these right wingers. But it's just not true. Um, well, you do. You do yeah. have to wonder, uh, you know, what are the principles at play here? 
when it comes to uh, supporters of Trump who mm-hmm. are supposedly conservative in name and silent on this issue. Yep. Uh, same thing with the tariffs as well for all the, the sort of, you know, the, the free trade uh, obsessed uh, neocons yeah. uh, who, who were focused on that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is very interesting when the tables are turned to see how actually those principles that were supposedly closely held and deeply held and loudly, loudly espoused yep. when someone else was in power, uh, they suddenly dissolve overnight. Exactly. But uh, to that end, let's talk Canada here, because I thought uh, Trudeau was a friend, sort of, to the climate uh, and this this purchase of this uh, Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline by Canada, the nationalization of the pipeline to ensure that it gets completed. This does not seem to be in line uh, with the Paris Agreement, and uh, which Canada, as far as I know, is still in, unlike the U.S. Uh, and uh, frankly, it's not in line with Trudeau's lobbying of Donald Trump to stay in that agreement. Uh, what's going on there? Well, so, you know, Stephen Harper, I don't know if, if listeners will be familiar with him, but mm-hmm. he's the, the prime minister that preceded Justin Trudeau right. in, in Canada. And he was kind of, uh, to, to use a U.S. comparison, he was kind of the more insidious and more competent but more boring version of, you know, President Bush in okay. some ways when it came to his relationship with the fossil fuel industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, big supporter of the industry, really focused and fixated on Canada's tar sands industry, and I think there was a lot of hope when Justin Trudeau came into office that that was going to change. They said, we're back. That was their message to the international community. We're going to support the Paris Agreement. We're going to fight hard yeah. for international action on climate change. And Trudeau came out, you know, swinging with that message. And what we're seeing with this decision here is that it's given the lie to the idea that the Trudeau government is really serious about tackling climate change. Because the reality is that if they continue to support and facilitate the expansion of the tar sands, through decisions like this decision to purchase um, a, a pipeline company, uh, a pipeline from a, from a sorry, a Houston, uh, Texas-based company, mm-hmm. um, and then massively expand this pipeline to enable more access to markets for Canada's tar sands oil, um, they're showing that they're not that interested in dealing with climate change because they're trying to tackle things at the margins on the demand side, but they're not serious about addressing fossil fuel supply. And if we're making it cheaper for fossil fuels to flow out of Canada and making it easier for that to happen and locking in that production, uh, then we're actually making it a lot harder for us to reduce emissions around the world. Is is this unprecedented for uh, the Canadian government to actually nationalize uh, a, a pipeline like this? To your knowledge, this this particular move uh, for for to buy an existing pipeline like this and the plans to expand one, I don't think there's precedent for it. There's lots of precedent in the Canadian government uh, history uh, for uh, buying into oil and gas. Uh, projects of mm-hmm. different kinds and nationalizing parts of industry and subsidizing industry heavily, which is also the case in the United States. There's, you know, this massive history of subsidy. And I think that's what this is sort of in that same vein of how do we how do we use every government lever at our disposal to support industry and to make sure that these projects go ahead, irrespective of the cost to the Canadian public right. and irrespective of the environmental and climate damage, as well as the disregard for indigenous rights in Canada, which is a massive issue because Trudeau also promised to respect the rights of indigenous peoples and to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And this decision sort of spits in the face of that promise. Yeah, it seems like he's trying to have it both ways as uh, Alberta Premier uh, Rachel Notley, uh, who I mentioned the sort of dueling responses from the two premiers, uh, the one in Alberta where the dirty tar sands are produced, claiming this was necessary for jobs and the economy, and then the British Columbia uh, premier where the pipeline will actually terminate on the West Coast for shipment overseas, charging that this will actually threaten jobs and the economy. 
who has it right, or do they both have a decent argument to make? I think, look, I think there's a point that we've had this mindset in Canada for so long that our natural resource endowment, our extractive industries are sort of a backbone of the Canadian economy. When you look at the numbers, actually we're really a much more diversified economy in some, in some senses already, and we're moving in that direction. But there's this idea, this cultural national idea that, that, that sort of we're these uh, hewers of, of wood and drawers of water. Um, and a lot of, a lot of different leaders have tried to move Canada's economy a little bit more away from that mindset. But I think, you know, what we're seeing here is uh, definitely a risk on the business side in British Columbia. We've had over 800 businesses in B.C. and across Canada sign a petition um, asking the British Columbia Premier uh, Horgan to continue resisting the pipeline um, since the announcement of the Canadian government, the federal government, to buy the pipeline. Uh, And we also, you know, we do need to actually support workers in the tar sands. Um, And I think the way to do that is not to hold out this false promise that a doomed uh, financially unviable pipeline is going to get built at any cost to Canadian taxpayers no matter what, but it's to be honest with those workers and say, look, there are enough jobs already in uh, cleaning up the mess that this industry has created. Literally hundreds of billions, some of the estimates from regulators in Alberta, is what it's going to cost to clean up the mess from the oil and gas industry and the, and the tar sands industry. Mm. There are tons of jobs there. There are lots of jobs in existing projects, but further expanding the tar sands makes absolutely no sense from an economic perspective or a climate perspective. And pretending that, that you know, the tar sands is a long-term industry and there's a real viable industry there is the same thing that's happening in the U.S., lying to coal miners that coal is going to make a comeback. We're going to make coal great again. It's not going to happen. What we should be doing is using public resources instead of using them to buy pipelines and spend tens of billions of dollars on that. We should be using those scarce resources to support workers, to support transitions for communities, and to help them retrain or for folks that are near the end of their career to help you know, cushion their retirement and make sure that we're respecting those workers. It's not about them doing something wrong, um, but if we're propping up the industry and pretending that everything's hunky-dory and everything's just going to continue as normal, even though we have a world where we need to address climate change urgently and immediately, um, that's not going to work for workers either. You, so we need to be respectful of them. You, you call this uh this this kinder morgan pipeline purchased by canada doomed uh your colleague at oil change international adam scott calls it an historic mistake charges that like other proposed export pipeline projects before it kinder morgan will not be built public opposition legal challenges failing economics have stopped all new tar sands exports to date uh, this government is using taxpayer money to buy a doomed asset with no value so do you concur? Will this be actually wasted money for a pipeline that will never actually be completed? That's the first part of that question. The second part of that question is, in another regard, is it good that the uh, that Canada owns it because it'll be a hell of a lot easier for Canada to shut it down entirely than it would be if you had a, a private concern who was uh, uh, pushing for it? Well, the first, the first question, um, I, I think that you know, it's important to recognize the government has bought this existing 65-year-old Trans Mountain pipeline and also the, the everything else to go along with the expansion of the pipeline, which has been planned and proposed, mm-hmm. but which hasn't yet proceeded in terms of major construction. So they've bought this, this existing pipeline and all the liabilities that go along with this ancient aging pipeline, which has spilled, um, you know, more than 80 times in its mm-hmm. history. Um, but they, they haven't yet uh, actually built this expanded pipeline, mm-hmm. uh, which is what the issue is over. And that's expected to cost another, um, you know, it could be uh, seven, 
seven billion dollars uh, to nine billion dollars is, and these are all Canadian dollars, which I know sounds like funny money to Americans who are listening, but <laughs> That's right. um, but it's it's not that far off the American dollar these days. So so it's a lot of money. It's pretty consequential, um, and I think that um, my view is that it, it, the expansion is pretty unlikely to be built because there is all this protest. Um, there is a lot of uh, civil disobedience happening in British Columbia. I mean, they're basically shaping up for another Standing Rock, um, except maybe Standing Rock on steroids, given the mm. amount of public interest and sort of how long this, this fight's been brewing. Um, and that's not something the Canadian government wants. That's not something the Canadian public need. And, but, but that's what the government's inviting with their purchase of the pipeline. I think the other thing that I already touched on is that Indigenous rights here aren't a footnote. There are active challenges before the courts right now mm-hmm. about Indigenous peoples uh, saying, First Nations saying, we haven't given our consent, we haven't been consulted properly uh, in this case uh, for this pipeline, and we don't want it to proceed. So that's, that's a, a massive question mark hanging over the project. And uh, is, is these First Nations and Indigenous peoples asserting their rights? Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason, in my view, why Kinder Morgan sort of positioned themselves to walk away from this project. They gave the Canadian government an ultimatum, mm-hmm. put them in a tough place politically, and very, very cunningly. I mean, keep in mind, uh, Kinder Morgan is the, the, the successor of Enron in many ways. Yep. They, they came out of, sprung out of Enron. Mm. And I think what they've done here is they basically pulled one over on the Canadian government for a failing project that they knew wasn't going to get built. Uh, there was a great Reuters piece that, uh, that's sort of an expose on this that says how Kinder Morgan won a billion-dollar bailout on, the, on Canada Pipeline. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what the whole story is about, is how they kind of hedged their bets and structured their contracts so that they maximized their benefit and left all the, the liability on the shoulders of, uh, of Canadian taxpayers. But as I mentioned, there's now uh, a potential way out here uh, uh, to essentially, they could use this opportunity to buy out, essentially, the fossil fuel industry, make them go away by buying up these pipelines and then shutting them down. Easier to for the for the government to shut it down than for a, a, a private concern, no? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's an interesting point, is that they have established this precedent, and that's what I think the Trump administration risks doing with the amount of intervention that they're demonstrating in the energy markets in the U.S. as well, is, uh, okay. I mean, if you want to play that game where we're nationalizing assets and, and subsuming markets to uh, the national interest and to, to public policy, I'm game. Let's do it, because the reality is sinking in, and I think is going to continue sinking in as the climate crisis gets more urgent, that we need to take action, and we need to have a managed decline of the fossil fuel industry. So I think you're totally right. Is, is I don't know if these folks realize exactly what they're setting up. Uh, but in my view, it's certainly possible that um, these are precedents for future governments to say, you know what, we're going to get out of this industry and we're going to make it happen and here's what we're going to do. So I guess the question for me is how do we do that in such a way that it doesn't place the burden on the shoulders of taxpayers primarily, but it actually makes sure that we're not letting the fossil fuel industry um, and their shareholders and executives get away with murder while taxpayers are sort of left on the hook for all the damages and cleanup. Alex Dukas, director of the Stop Funding Fossil Fuels program at the nonprofit Oil Change International, based in D.C., but originally hailing from the great white north. Uh, always great to have you here, Alex. Uh, folks can follow you on the Twitters at A Dukas. That's A D O U K A S. You can also uh, follow Price of Oil on Twitter and uh, get more information at uh, from Oil Change International at priceofoil.org. Alex, really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, let's do it again soon. Thanks so much for having me on. You Take bet. Care. 
Okay, a quick break, and we'll come back with uh, some of the some of the reaction to uh, my uh, e- email thread with the Alabama Secretary of State. Caught a lot of people's attention, it seems. We'll talk about that maybe a bit more after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Blame Canada! Seems that everything's gone wrong since Canada came along. Blame Canada! Blame Canada! They're not even a real country anyway. Oh, so cold. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Um, I want to get to some of these responses to uh, my email thread with Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill. But does you say that the oil industry has now come out with a statement opposing this new scheme by the Trump administration? Yes, they have absolutely come out. The American Petroleum Institute has joined up with the solar industry and the wind industry and also the utility industry all have issued statements saying we're against this uh, Trump administration proposal. There is no grid reliability problem. The grid reliability uh, that this plan to force coal and nuclear Force for re- national security yeah, purposes here in the U.S. require utilities to buy dirty, polluting power in order to prop up these uh, dying industries. So they're against it. It makes sense. The oil industry supports natural gas, which is a big killer of coal in the utility industry right now. So, um, yeah. It's, it's, so d- seeing Donald Trump try to do that is not really a surprise. Seeing Justin Trudeau do that uh purchasing that pipeline that's a little troubling oh yeah totally all right uh mentioned uh, uh our previous show in which i get read this extraordinary i think email thread from the secretary of state of alabama that uh he was sending me these just remarkable responses insults whatever um over the past week this in advance of Alabama's primary election on Tuesday when uh, the Secretary of State himself, John Merrill, will be on the Republican primary ballot. So I thought it was important to get that information out to people, out to voters, hopefully folks in uh, Alabama, so they can take notice of the the guy who is the top election official in their state. Uh, basically, it was uh, two different sort of issues. And you can go to bradblog.com. You can download the whole show. You can download the entire email thread. Uh, But basically, uh, two issues, one concerning the fact that he has been blocking people on Twitter now for months and months just for calling him out for being incorrect on things, as I did last December when he was totally wrong about the Alabama uh, vote tabulation computers, vote tabulation systems that they use there. And I was very polite about it, but I got blocked anyway on Twitter, so I couldn't follow him. 
election law experts have also been blocked by him like crazy. And last week, there was a federal court ruling in New York that said that public officials like the president of the United States cannot block people who they believe are um, political opponents, which I was not a political opponent of I his. I know. But, you were just pointing yeah. out factual inaccuracies like the other people were very politely. Very politely. Uh, and uh, on that factual inaccuracy concerning his own voting system in uh, in Alabama, uh, the thread included him saying stuff like, Brad, you have a problem that's bigger than I can fix. You don't know what you're talking about. He said, he was a recognized national expert in the field of elections, despite the fact that he's uh, a one-term secretary of state. Um, but anyway, it was it was just kind of remarkable because I was not insulting him, but his behavior was amazing. Flavio at Facebook writes, I heard your account last night. Unreal. When you're a public official, your public communications are not your private property, but are open to the public. That in response to the fact that Merrill had vowed, I will never unblock you. I will never unblock anybody who I have blocked on Twitter. I don't care what the federal court says. I don't care that the federal court says I'm in violation of the constitutional uh, uh, rights to a free speech and freedom of the press in this case. Uh, Whiskey Peddler on uh, on Twitter said, holy crap. <laughs> John Merrill has zero professionalism, personal insults. His experience with elections has been limited to his role as secretary of state. He was a school district spokesman and a banker prior to that. Hive on Twitter said, I have about 25 years of programming experience across multiple industries, so I can help you with your computer illiteracy. Ooh. He was talking to Merrill, not me, just know, to be clear. But still, he said, I'm an expert in the field, too. I'm not sure I can help with the whole reality denial thing, though. That's a problem bigger than even I can solve. <laughs> I think that's a reference to what Merrill said to me. Yes. Well said. Uh, he added, you might want to try a mental health professional for that last part. And, you know, that was the thing. That's why I didn't. I was kind of embarrassed for him when I was started to get these uh, emails over the past week. And I noted uh, on the show that I wasn't going to even share them because they were just kind of embarrassing. They were stupid. And then I realized he's running for office. He's running for reelection. Yep. Um, so uh, Jay Panzer writes on Twitter, Merrill is unhinged and should be nowhere near public office. Also, he clearly wants to keep conversations about his practices off the record. Well, he didn't do a very good job of that, but he did try. He at first he, he you know said, "You have to call me. I will only talk to you on the phone. Here's my cell number." Yep. But uh, I guess he just could not help himself. He couldn't help himself. Some of those emails were him replying to himself. He would send me an email. I wouldn't reply because you were off the grid. And then he would, or in cases that I just, I had no idea what, what, what do you say to something like that? And oh, then he would true. come pile on with a second, oh, you know, I didn't have enough. I got to say something else. You really got under his skin. It seems like it. Erwin Corey at bradblog.com commented, Brad, I worked in Mississippi for three years in the 1980s. Mississippi, next door to Alabama. The people who are native there do not like outsiders ever suggesting how to do things. 
Which is true. He said to me and to election law professor Rick Hassan several times, if I need any advice from someone who lives in California, I'll let you know. Uh, he says they live in a backwater state, so they're always on the offensive to outsiders. So he appears to me to be acting almost normally for a white man there. He says there are a few progressives around, but most are really... Um, he used an expletive uh, that I won't repeat. Don't take it personally, he says. I'm sure he treats everyone else the same except for those in his Southern Baptist church. If he thought you were black, it would have been worse. Keep up the heat, says Irwin. Marilyn Marks, election integrity expert herself, frequent guest on this show, said uh, to her followers on Twitter, don't miss the jaw-dropping emails from John Merrill linked by the Brad blog. Hard to imagine that any state election official would behave in this manner. Alabama voters read this piece before voting in the primary next week, and she links to our uh, to the post at uh, bradblog.com. John Merrill seems truly unhinged, clearly not a responsible Secretary of State as long as a longtime election activist. By the way, Marilyn Marks is a Republican, longtime Republican. Oh yeah. She says, uh, as a longtime election activist, I know how a professional Secretary of State conducts himself. Merrill is far from fit for office. Finally, Jonathan Simon, executive director of the Election Defense Alliance, author of Code Red, Computerized Elections and the War on American Democracy, uh, told me via email to bradcast at bradblog.com. He said, whoa, Brad, that Merrill email string was a hoot. It would be truly funny if it weren't real. I don't know, of course, but it sure sounded to me like someone with some serious blank to hide. Well, bless your equanimity, he says. <laughs> What's equanimity? Uh, it means that you handle things very evenly, very equally. Equanimity. Shut up. <laughs> All right. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to uh, my guest today, Oil Change International's Alex Dukas, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. You can download this show or any other anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email, as I said, at bradcast at bradblog.com. Follow, uh, follow and share us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog, especially if you know folks in Alabama. Make sure they hear about that show on Thursday about John Merrill before the Tuesday primaries. Uh, that's it. Oh, my thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us try to stay on your public airwaves as long as we can. Your support is absolutely crucial right now as ever, but uh, we really need your support. bradblog.com slash donate so we can continue to do what we try to do every day right here. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.